0: That's not fair. There is potentially no sentence that has greater shaped most of our lives than this phrase, that's not fair. It's a phrase that starts at a very young age and continues on and on and on and on. Uh, We know it with kids. We see it when um, children are small. They'll say, um, you know, look at something that happens with their sibling and they'll say, mom, dad, that's not fair. Right You hear that a million times an hour if you live in our household. This is just, "I've not gotten my fair bit." Uh, and then in school, you know, we start to grow up. Maybe we're trying to make a team, or we're trying to do well on a test. We find out that the guy next to us got a better grade on an essay than we did, and we're sure we did better, and we say, "That's not fair." Or, "I know that his jump shot is not as good as mine. Why am I not on the team? That's not." Uh, We get a little older and we start to date and we start to try to find people to be with and we find that the worst people in the world get boyfriends and girlfriends and we are alone. And we can just say, that is not fair. Uh, Maybe you have tried to pursue someone to a relationship and they pick someone else and you always dislike the person they pick, right? Because there's no way that that person is as great as I am. That is not fair. Uh, The workplace is another place where this happens all the time. We look around at the people who get promotions and we think, well, that's not fair. They don't deserve that job. I do. Or we talk about our pay. You know, I work this hard and I try to get to this spot and that's not fair that I'm not paid the way that I should be. Um, It can continue to relationships. Uh, if you have been in a relationship for any period of time, if you had a spouse, uh, if you had a roommate, you have probably had some point where you were discussing something going on and you, your, your significant other said something about you and you said, that's not fair. You're not fighting fair. You know, if, you, if we were being honest about this, if we were telling the truth, you do this and you start pointing fingers at each other to make sure that you have a fair argument about who is at fault For, you know, not putting the toilet seat down or whatever it is that you're fussing about. The reality is that, um, oh, and kids. Kids are never fair, okay? If you are a parent in any way, shape, or form, you'll go, oh, this is just not fair. You will work all day long to do something wonderful for them. And then they will just fuss and complain about it no matter how hard you've worked. Because kids aren't fair. Kids are never fair. They're always selfish little creatures, right? The reality is many of us, if we're not careful, can go through life completely frustrated with how unfair our life has been. Maybe you've met someone like this who's gotten into their senior years in life, and they look around and they just grump about everything because they have a huge list of wrongs in their mind of all the ways they have been treated unfairly. And it just poisons their life to the point that they're just unhappy all the time. And you're like, well, what's wrong? Well, I've spent 30 years at a job that didn't appreciate me with a wife that didn't appreciate me and kids that didn't appreciate me and nobody's been fair to me and blah, right? These people have just been overcome by a lifelong bitterness because they have not been treated fairly. Uh, This morning, we're going to spend some time as we continue to walk through Matthew Uh, talking about fairness and i want to spend some time talking about the pharisees it always feels like a dangerous proposition to understand somebody who is so obviously wrong so much of the time but i want us to think for a minute about how a pharisee a religious leader of jesus time might have thought about jesus because the reality is i think that they would have said frequently that's not fair here they've gone and spent their life devoted to God, spent their life to be good religious people, spent their life trying to keep the law to the best of their ability. And Jesus comes in and all he does is ever just criticize them. And you could see them saying, hey, that's not fair. It's particularly interesting. Um, if you have studied ancient Judaism, you would know that Jesus believes more in line with what the Pharisees believe than any other Jewish group of the first century, this is often forgotten by us because Jesus is so often criticizing the Pharisees. But um, Jesus agrees with the, on the with the Pharisees on a whole lot more than he'd agree with the Sadducees or the Essenes or the um, community at Qumran. There's all these other Jewish groups we know about in the first century, and the Pharisees are the closest to the theological beliefs of Jesus. Yet they're the ones he's always going on about. And you could see the Pharisees go, We're on the same team, man. Why do you have to be so hard to us? That's not fair. We're good, devout Jewish people. Why are you always in our business about what we're doing? Uh, certainly, as the church begins to accept Gentiles, these feelings will be exasper- exacerbated, right? Uh, that's not fair. We've kept the law for a really long time, and we've respected God's word for a really long time. And now you're just going to include these Gentiles that don't even listen? These Gentiles that eat food that's unclean? These Gentiles that don't circumcise their sons? These Gentiles that do all this stuff they're not supposed to? That is not fair. And the story we have today kind of honestly looks ahead to that problem. It's very interesting that the story we had today is, is from Jesus, but you can see Jesus looking into the future of all of the that's not fair that, he's going to, that the church is going to receive about the receiving of the Gentiles. And what happens as we talk about the story, as we continue this series about the upside-down kingdom of Matthew, is that there are going to be, Jesus is going to challenge the Pharisee's sense of what's fair and what's right. And it's going to hopefully speak to our own hearts about what we hold on to as fair and what we need to let go of. Uh, We're going to start in Matthew chapter 20 this week, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Uh, this story is very simple. It's, it's, it happens still every day to this uh, day. Uh, if you go to different parts of the country, maybe even here, I don't know. If you go to Home Depot or Lowe's early on a morning on a weekday, you'll probably see some guys hanging around just kind of chilling in the parking lot. And some of those guys are looking for a day's work. They're day laborers. They're looking for some guy to come by and go, hey, I need two guys for a job today, and they can pile in the pickup truck and go work. Uh, if, you go, uh, if you like old movies, On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando is about day laborers uh, at the docks uh, back in the 1940s or 50s where they, um, the guys would just sit around and they would wait for uh, the docks to come out and say, hey, I need five, and they would pick five guys and they'd bring them in to work. This happened all the time in Jesus' world. Uh, when Jesus prays, Father, uh, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, that's the kind of prayer that a day laborer makes. Let me go out and find somebody who will hire me for the day so I can make enough money to get food on the table for today. And the pay here is very typical. A denarius was what you paid someone for a day's work in the first century. So when this landowner comes out and picks these people and gives them a denarius, this story is just totally, this is the way every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, even Sundays for them worked, right? You'd just come out, there'd be a bunch of guys milling around in town, you'd pick up some day laborers and you'd pay them a day's wage. And so nothing about the story is particularly fascinating. Um, It's a world that many people still live in today, where they literally every day are looking for a day's work. Story goes on. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever's right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Um, my guess is that by five o'clock, he's not getting the same caliber of worker that he would have got first thing in the morning, right? Uh, in these situations, it's kind of like picking a baseball team, you know, when you're in the backyard. They would have come and it would have been the strongest, strappiest, most ready to go. The people have had their coffee, right? Those are the people you asked to work. And so as he comes back throughout the day to different groups of people, and he sees them standing around, the obvious question is, well, why are they still standing around? Maybe they're kind of weak. Maybe they look like they're not good workers. Maybe everyone in the town knows that they can't be trusted because they've stolen before. Maybe they're just super lazy. Maybe they didn't wake up until 3 in the afternoon from a hard night of partying and now are just kind of milling around hoping to maybe get some kind of work. There are lots of different reasons why you're standing around at 3 or 5 in the afternoon, but none of them are good, okay? And so the master has gone out and he goes probably with increasingly poor labor every time he brings them in. I think the story says something very fascinating. God, in this story, is the landowner. And it tells us something about God and God's character. God likes to make useless people useful people. He's the kind of landowner that goes out and goes, listen, it's five in the afternoon and you're still not employed, but I'll find something for you to do. The reality of this story is either the landowner severely understaffed first thing in the morning or he is creating new work so that people can get paid, right? He either hired way too, many, too, way too few people in the morning, or he's looking out and goes, you know, this guy needs a break. Uh, he can, you know, I'll let him shine my shoes, whatever. Like he is creating new work for these people to do. And he's bringing them alongside, and he is helping the people that everyone else in the village had picked through and glossed over, and he is finding ways to use them. That's core to the character of God, that people who are expendable to others are useful for God. And so he finds a place in his vineyard for these guys who can't get a job to save their lives to get a job. And then the story moves on, and it's pay time. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "'Call the workers and pay them their wages.' beginning with the last ones, hired, and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So th- when those who were hired first, so when those come, came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day? That's not fair, right? This is the inherent complaint here. I I worked all day. Undoubtedly, some of those that started at 6 or 7 a.m. or whenever they start in the vineyards are thinking to themselves, I could have slipped in today, been a bum all day, come in at 5 o'clock, and I still would have got the same pay. Why did I even bother? What was the point of all this? Why Why did I even put in this kind of effort? And it says something about human nature that when they start to fuss, they use this fascinating phrase. He has made them equal to us. What does that mean that they were before the master came around? They weren't equal. We're good people. We're first guys picked in the morning. We're not those bums that sit around in the middle of the day. How dare this landowner think I'm not worth more than that guy. And you start to see the pride that is inherent here. It's not just the hours. It's not just the time. It's this isn't fair. I haven't been treated rightly. And the reality of this story, what God is telling us, is that to, or what Jesus is telling us, is that when, it, when push comes to shove, God really isn't fair. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. God is fair in that when God said, I'll pay you the denarius, he paid them the denarius, right? He kept his word. This story is very clear that God will keep his word to you. And so if you have been told, work for a day and you'll make a denarius, God is going to keep that deal. He's not going to cheat you. He's not going to not give you something that he has promised to give you. He is fair in that he will keep his word. The way he is not fair, though, is that he is not going to sit here and play games about what he has to give you versus what he gives somebody else. Uh, Last weekend, uh, some of you guys know, Uh, I got to go to Comic-Con as a press member, right? And um, I always come home from Comic-Con with gifts for the girls. This time I was very explicit. I went to the three oldest and I said, I'm going, you know, the kind of stuff that's there. What do you want? And I got very specific orders from each of them, right? Um, They were not of the same dollar value. Some of their gifts were a little more expensive than some of the other gifts. I gave them what they asked for. You can imagine. uh, So that was fine. They went, okay. But at some point, eventually, somebody got upset because they got what they asked for instead of what their sister asked for, which is ridiculous, right? You asked for a book. Your sister asked for a toy. She got a toy. Don't fuss. But nonetheless, the tears, why did they get a toy? I wanted a toy. You didn't ask for a toy. But kids will do this. My mom is... She wants to make sure she spends the same amount of money on each kid at Christmas, right? I don't play that game. Put your calculator away, all right? If I get you a gift, I am trying to be sweet to you and give you something nice. Do not sit there and calculate if your gift costs as much or as little as somebody else's. But sometimes we do this, right? Like, well, if you spend $10 on him, you have to spend $10 on me. And this is some of the calculus that is going on in these people's brains. Well, if I worked longer, then I need to get more pay. You've got to be fair. Pull out your generosity calculator. Make sure that all accounts are full. And Jesus absolutely says, God refuses to be handcuffed in his generosity that way. It's an amazing sentence. Are you jealous because God is generous? Because we play that game sometimes. God, if you're going to give him something, you've got to give me something. God, this isn't fair. I need to have the same blessing that somebody else does. And so we get out the generosity calculator. We get out um, a long ledger where we try to figure out if we've gotten just as much as somebody else. And we get the sibling rivalry and we feel bad and upset if we're not being treated exactly like we think somebody else is being treated. And Jesus says, God's not going to be fair that way. Don't think you can sit there and demand things from him just because he was generous to somebody else. Sometimes, and if you're a parent, you know this, sometimes you just give one of your kids something nice and you can't give it to all the other ones, and they need to just deal with it because we should never be generous or jealous that somebody else experienced generosity. It's just not the way God wants us to live. This is particularly difficult um, for, I think, for religious people. I think what Jesus is pointing to in this passage is a reality that we need to acknowledge and own. Many people who are religious, who are drawn to religion, have this inherent desire to be the good kids in the class, right? I really want to be God's favorite. None of us will say it this way but some of us go to church because we think it'll get us God points and we think that he'll be really happy with us and we think that we'll get ahead and that we'll be his kind of favorite child. And then we look at the world around us and see people who don't have that same compulsion and they're getting ahead. We get really frustrated. Jesus knows this religious propensity to want to be better than or more than or ahead of other people. And this can creep into us as a community, as a church, as a person to say, I, want, I, I, I go to church and I'm involved in God's work because I want to be ahead and new people are great as long as they realize I was here first. And people, uh, new people can come in as long as we understand that they're further down the sanctification train than I am, right? Like, it's okay that somebody else is here as long as we have a pecking order. Because I've been here working since I was seven years old. They cannot swoop in at 45 and be full members of the kingdom of God. And that's a darkness that can lie in our hearts. And Jesus sees it lying in the hearts of the Pharisees. And he goes, you may never be jealous because God is generous to somebody else. See, the key here is to move towards a life of gratefulness. A life that says, I am so thankful for the relationship I have with God. I am so thankful for the blessings I have in life. I am so thankful for the Holy Spirit working in my life. And I don't have to compare it and measure it and calculate it. I can just say what I have is enough. Where I am so infatuated with the gift that I've been given that I'm not checking to see if it's as expensive as the guy next to me. And that kind of gratefulness, we are not trained to have, okay? We just, we live in a society and an economy that exists on a certain degree of greed, right? Like that is part of the way we've literally created our world to structurally function. And so to say what you have is enough, there is nothing that would terrify the power structures of the world as much as somebody who could go, oh, I've got enough. I don't need anything more. Imagine if every time you saw a commercial on TV, you said, that commercial has no sway on me because I have enough. I don't need to buy that thing that's on TV. Literally, we'd stop having TV. The whole thing works on making you buy something that you don't already have. And Jesus says, you don't sit here and compare. Just be grateful for what you have. Because ultimately, what he's hoping for is that the first people that showed up are filled with gratitude because they got to spend the day with the master. They got to spend a day in his vineyard. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, the psalmist says, right? That just knowing God is better than any reward. Because there's no way you can be jealous like these people are jealous if you care more about the master than his paycheck, but most of us, uh, very few of us probably have a boss like that that we love so much that we're like, listen, I don't even care what I get paid. I get to hang out with you today, right? I mean, even if you have a good boss, that's probably not how you feel about your work. But this is the idea of the story, that the people who got to spend all day in the vineyard should be just overcome with gratitude that they got to work by the master's side. And getting the denarius at the end of the day, whatever, that's just the generosity of this man that I love getting to be with all day. Like a kid who gets to spend a special day with mom or dad, right? And go out and go out for lunch, or go see a movie. And the child, it's not about the th- the things that they get, it's that they get all the attention and all the love and all that connection, right? And Jesus says, if you're hired at the beginning of the day, be grateful for the presence of the father in your life. You don't need to sit here and judge and compare with other people Uh, this runs deep into the way churches grow or shrink I want to kind of transition towards some of the things we'll talk about next week in our our our, our, uh, anniversary service Um, when we become the kinds of people who are just constantly striving to be the better ones the favorite kids the ones that are you know more loved people smell that when they walk in the building okay and so part of being a community that's radically committed to engaging new people and being part of our neighborhood and blessing people who don't know us and creating new relationships and new friendships is that those people are just as much on the ground floor as we are. They're not a second class. They're not like, you know, lower down on the Boy Scout, you know, they're not like Weeblos and we're first scouts or whatever. I don't know, Preston, I've totally messed that up. But um, there's just not that hierarchy thing. We go, you know what, we really enjoy hanging out in the master's vineyard, and we're really excited you're doing it with us. And when God gives them good blessings, we go, awesome. Because we never want to be jealous of God's generosity. All right. Uh, if you're new with us, we do a Q&A at the end of all of our sermons where we allow you, we ask you guys to ask some questions, some things that you'd like more information on, or things you want clarity on, whether it's the text or the application or whatever. So, uh, does anybody have any questions about today's sermon? Yeah. So I think there's a, a bigger, a bigger message of gratefulness that's kind of an umbrella that this is under, but also some of the things you're talking about are under of uh, how do you create an environment in your household of just being thankful for the things that you've got. Um, <laughs> Fran and I are kind of blunt with them. If our kids ever say, well, but so-and-so has this or does this, we'll just say things like, well, sorry, their parents might have more money than we do because we can't do that. <laughs> and, you know, like, that's not the way it works in the Borchers household. Like, one of our big rules though, has always been the kids can do one thing at a time. Right? So if you want to play uh, – if you want music class, awesome. You want gymnastics, awesome. You want them both, too bad. You can only do one of them. You know, and, like – um so yeah, we just tell our kids no a lot. And what we tell them is, just be thankful for what you have. Uh, and we always harp on this. You are owed nothing. Like the world does not owe you a thing. Um, you are lavish. The fact that you all have a house over your head and food on your table, that is the good grace of God. That's what Paul says to the, um, to the church at Lystra. Uh, I think it's the, no, it's not the, yeah, it's the Listerns. Maybe it's not. Somebody can check me. He has this awesome sermon where he says, if you have food on your table and a roof over your head, you know that God exists and that he's good because that's a grace that has been offered to you. And so, I don't know. I always try to ground our kids in that. Like, did you eat last night? Grace of God is real good. And the grace of dad's pretty awesome too. And so, you know, like, um, so, I don't know, our kids might have terrible parents too, but we always try to try to be real clear on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the gratitude naturally fuels humility too, right? Because there's an arrogance in the other workers. I obviously deserve more pay. And the the gratitude helps fuel the idea of like, I'm not that great, you know? I, I, I did my best and I got paid what I was told I get paid. That's enough, you know? I I really do think there's not a more countercultural sentence in the world than "That's enough. I have enough." Enough is just a word we don't ever use. (laughs) Any other questions? Um, That's an interesting question. Like, so in in practicality, if it really happened, would I pay that way? No. uh, Yeah. So. I'm always really leery of putting responsibility on someone else for, uh, putting responsibility on person B for person A's heart, right? I think you could argue in the story, God does work this way. Some of us see unfairness. We see, like those things I listed at the beginning, we see people at work that get promotions and pay raises that don't deserve them and God doesn't like step down in his divine power and make sure we don't see that or protect us from it or make sure it doesn't happen, he goes, you know, Seth, just just be happy with what you've got. And so I think that, I mean, I think God really wants to develop our hearts and make us better people. And so I think the idea here is that the master— yeah, it's going to incite these people towards jealousy, but the master also is talking to him at the end and says, hey, don't I have a right to be jealous? I think the master's trying to teach them a lesson. Like He's helping them to realize, hey, your sense of pride and your sense of uh, things that you're owed are, are gonna cause you trouble in life. And so I, I see what you're saying, and I, again, if I was a boss, I wouldn't share with my employees what the other employees make, right? <laughs> no, but no employer does. Um, for practical reasons, but I think here there are times where uh, I don't know. There's times with my kids where I know one of them has a specific character issue that needs to get worked on. I'll I'll push on that bruise just a little bit to help like bring it to the light. Like, hey, this is a a place where you could really grow. And you know, I don't want to be mean about it. I want to take joy in it. I want to be like, haha, I'm making Abigail squirm. You know, like I don't want to be that guy. But if there's something I see that's um, an issue. Sometimes I'll say, "Hey, what did you what did you think about that situation?" She'd be like, "I hated it because of this." I'm like, "Well, do you think that that's, you know, do you think maybe you could learn from it and you could grow this way?" That's the way I would read it. But I see what you're saying. Does that does that make sense? Any other questions? All right, we got one more song and then we will be done.